Everyone has a life that no one else knows. Dark matters. They are the whispers, the most intimate messages of the universe's voice, carrying its closest secrets to the ears that are all but deaf. We believe it's the same man. Both victims were female, extremely thin, and the broken bones. Uh, we're checking missing person files. We think there may be others. Raped her, stabbed her, broke her bones. That's what they say the murderer did. It's always put in that order. But why? Do they know, or do they only know what happened, but not the order? The grammar, the inflections. Even with the ugliest things, we hope for the right order. We need it to be correct. Because any other would, any other would. Rape, kill, break. Rape, break, kill. Kill, rape, break. Kill, break, rape. Break, rape, kill. Break, kill, rape. They are not the same, not anything like. I study them, repeat them slowly, imagining each act, how it changes with the order. Meaning changes, awfulness, everything. He was talking about a revolution in thought as great as the one that changed gravity from a straight line force into a bend in a continuum and revealed time and space as siblings. It all evoked the end of the Potomac system, repeatedly tweaked to save the appearances of planetary and stellar movement until Copernicus, Earth's decentering elegance could no longer be denied. Catskill and his colleagues are approaching the revelation of a new order, a new universe, in which even light will be known differently, and darkness as well. Yes, darkness is substance and presence, not absence. Hello and good morning. It's Monday. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. Today is the 28th day of September 2015, and this is our 199th broadcast. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at, at, at Sync42 and at Syncbook. After last night's rare super blood moon, we are going into the open cut, the deepest hole on the planet to examine dark matter and to confront the thought that the matter we know is only a tiny sliver of what is really there. And we'll do so from the quietest place in the universe. Good morning, Will here, and today on 42 Minutes we'll dig for light and abandoned mind with author and educator Kent Myers. Mr. Myers is the author of several books including The Work of Wolves, Light in the Crossing, and the highly regarded Twisted Tree. His recent Harper's essay about dark matter and neutrinos at the Sanford Underground Research Facility was featured on Radio Lab Elements Broadcast. He is the recipient of many book awards and has been included in the New York Times list of notable works. It's an honor to be hosting him today. Welcome, Kent. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Great. I missed the blood moon last night, though, because it was raining here, so I was disappointed in that, but I'm pleased you mentioned that. <laughs> it was it was a little underwhelming. I was in the mountains at a hot springs to enjoy it specifically, but I, I had the, the context of my city wasn't there as a backdrop, so the super aspect really just wasn't very... Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, you got a better me. view than we did, so... Okay. 
Well, so you can tell with this introduction that we're mixing the idea of dark matter and dark matters, uh, which is really interesting when I, when I read Twisted Tree. But let's just start with the quietest place in the universe, which is really saying okay. something. Where is the quietest place in the universe, and, and why is it so? Well, I have to first say that it's it is demonstrably the quietest place in the universe. That's a that's a, a Rick Gatescale, the scientist whom I interviewed, made it uh, was very adamant that we couldn't say it was the quietest place in the universe, but it was the quietest place that we could demonstrate as being, <laughs> which is I think a just a beautiful way to see how how a scientist thinks. Um, but the, the quietest, demonstrably quietest place in the universe um, is at the bottom of a 8,000 foot deep, not the bottom, but halfway down an 8,000 foot deep old gold mine in Lead, South Dakota, um, where a experiment, a dark matter experiment has been set up called the LUX, which is the uh, large underground xenon detector, and it's designed to um, prove and detect um, this, this dark matter, which is a theory right now that scientists have, um, that there's all this stuff floating around in the universe that we cannot uh, detect, and it's running right through us and right through the Earth right now. And this experiment, as far as d detecting the dark matter, why does it need to be, like, quiet refers to to noise but it well yeah yeah it's it's a, it's a metaphor quiet is here used um all these scientists use quiet because but they're talking about radioactive quiet um not not noise quiet but it's the the way that that human beings can really kind of get an idea of of what it means it's the idea of cutting out they're trying to cut out all of the background radiation um that is it's a chaos of radioactive noise that we're surrounded by, um, largely from cosmic radiation. Um, and so if they go underground deep enough into a, into clean rock, and by clean, they mean non-radioactive rock, uh, which the rock in, in the Black Hills is. It's, it's, a, it's a very clean, um, hard, hard rock. And if they go down far enough, that uh, background radiation gets um, absorbed by the surrounding rock, so you got you have a very radioactively quiet place at the bottom of this mine, and there they set up these experiments to cut even more radioactive noise out, and that leaves them the possibility of being able to detect these extremely uh, non-reactive. Uh, particles that are that are passing through us so that's the theory if that short description of it makes any sense well in the essay i think you use the metaphor of a net and that yes i did um i i compared it uh to um you know if you're trying to catch um minnows um and you're using a a shark net, a net designed to catch sharks, um, the minnows are going to pass right through it. And essentially, this dark matter and neutrinos, there's two different things we're talking about here. Dark matter is one and neutrinos are the other, but they pass through um, normal matter, uh, what scientists call baryonic matter, 
um, without reacting with it at all. And so they will go right through the earth. A neutrino will go through um, like 100 million miles of solid lead. It doesn't even know it exists. Uh, so if you try to catch that um, with a, a net made of matter, it's like trying to catch a minnow with a, with a shark net. And all you can really do is hope that once in a while, one of those minnows will, will bump its nose on, on a knot in the net. That's the metaphor I use. And you can, you can register that knot. You can register that little bitty bump. And, and that's what one way to look at the experiment that is going on in the, in the, Lux, in the Lux experiment, yeah. Well, now, so part of what we like to explore on our show is just the poetry of meaning. And so mm-hmm. your essay definitely is about science, but then there is this, this other layer of, of meanings on there. So tell me, what is the open cut? I mean, so that, that has so much resonance to it. Well, the open cut is this, there's two different parts to this mind. And in, in your introduction, you did say the open cut was the, the, the quietest place in the universe, but they're actually two different things. The, the lux detector is actually at the bottom of a, of a, 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 an ordinary mine. The open cut is this immense um, secondary part of the Homestake mine, which, which is just a, it's open pit mining. And so next to the, the tunnel mine, the shafts, is this immense hole dug into the ground that looks, it's so deep and it's so large, it's like a half mile across, and it's, oh gosh, I think 1,200 feet deep. Um, it, it looks like something, it looks like the Grand Canyon. You know, it has that kind of sense. It, it, it's so big, it looks like a geologic um formed by geologic forces, but it's actually just people who have dug and dug and dug and dug and dug, starting out with spades and shovels and wheelbarrows and, and advancing through the 20th century with bulldozers and immense mining trucks. And, and uh, they're just, they've just been taking uh, gold ore out of this hole for, oh, since 19, 18, 1876, approximately. Um, so that's the open cut. It's this, it's this human caused geologic feature that when you look at it, you, you truly cannot tell whether it's human made or earth made. And so it, as I said in that essay, it just causes your mind to kind of jump and waver between interpretations. And I compare that in the essay to the neutrino, which changes its identity kind of uh, as it passes through space. Yeah. Yeah, you called it like a Trinity principle. Yeah, a, trini- a Trinitarian particle. I had fun with that. It's a, a Trinitarian particle that is actually kind of three particles in one, um, because at the at the quantum level, which I don't understand and don't even pretend to, um, it it will actually change um, from one version of itself to another uh, as it passes through space. Well, so let's give our listeners just a briefest in, uh, lesson on mining. What is you? You started telling me this. What is heat leach mining? You know, how is this ore process? Heat leach mining is actually not even part of this essay. That's a whole new way of mining, which involves uh, taking very, very low grade uh, ore and piling it up into small 
pills and then pouring uh, cyanide over it. And the cyanide leaking through the ore will um, leach the gold out of the out of the ground, and then you collect that cyanide and you um, reconstitute the gold from it. But that's not a process that um, the Homestake Mine used. They were actually tunneling. Uh, the Homestake Mine is immense. Uh, the underground portion? The underground portion is absolutely immense. I mean, it is, uh, in the essay, I, I compare it to the New York City subway system. It's it's about that big. Um, 300 and I forget my numbers, but 300 and some miles of underground tunnel. We're not talking about little tunnels, you know. These these are tunnels big enough to drive immense ore trucks through. Um, so this mine is just a absolute wonder of uh, of, of creation, if you will, of, of mankind's kind of relentless driving of. Uh, you know, forward uh, to to get this gold. Um, you can look at it in some ways as kind of a. <laughs> you can look at it as an awful thing. My gosh, look at this. You know, there, we did all of this work just for gold. On the other hand, it's truly astonishing. It's a, a an accomplishment that is hard to believe. Um, that people in in the late 1800s began digging, and they just went on digging until they had this underground structure that is immensely sophisticated and incredibly hard to maintain um, and is hugely technological. So that that's what the Homestake Mine is. Um, it goes down 8,000 feet, which is almost two miles, and it has miles underground. And that's now an underground. Not, that's now an underground astrophysics lab called the Sanford Underground Research Facility, which is what I write about in that essay. Yeah. Well, so you also mention how much money it costs to just keep pumping the water out of. Which gives you some sense of yeah. It, it costs the figure I came up with. It costs about a million dollars a month just to pump the water out of the mine because it's constantly leaking in. And you need incredibly powerful and numerous uh, water pumps. It's a small river um, that is pumped out of that mine every day. And just running these pumps costs about a million dollars a month. That's the figure I, the most recent figure I came up with in doing my research. And so that gives you some idea of, you know, I think we think of mines as being, well, they're just holes in the ground. Um, but I compare them to skyscrapers. A skyscraper is not just a bunch of bricks stacked on top of each other. You know, it's got these incredible uh, support systems that that allow it to be air conditioned and heated, and uh, that basically keep it maintained. And a mine is just that sophisticated, and that's what we have here. So then, what happens when they turn the pumps off to both the underground well, line and the open cut? They start to fill with water, and they will fill with water. Um, the open cut, if you don't pump that water out, will eventually become a lake, I guess. Uh, we don't really know. You know, we've got we've got instances in Montana of this kind of disaster. You know, the Berkeley the Berkeley Pit in Montana is a essentially a huge poisonous lake where you know if a duck drops into the Berkeley Pit, it it probably is dead. Um, I don't know that the open cut would be uh, 
a poison lake because the rock is one well, is much cleaner. You know, it's not it's not full of cadmium and um, those sorts of metals. Um, but you probably have a lake if if you st- stop pumping it. And in the uh, underground mine would simply be a a vast cave full of water. Um, so and in fact they did when when the mines stopped being a mine when Homestake abandoned it and before the state of South Dakota managed to take it over, there were a few years, maybe about a year, when they did shut the pumps off and the mine the mine had filled itself up almost to the, the forty eight fifty level. So and then they had to pump that back down. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's yeah. just it's just astonishing. Yeah. The the these things we put uh you know, into the earth here, and then you know they have consequences. They, they, in a sense, continue to have a life. You know, um, they're they're not inert. They're not um, passive. They they change under our feet, which is really quite astonishing. The echoes through time of the consequences of our actions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Which almost wants me to lead into Twisted Tree, but first let's just talk about, so the Homestake Mine, this is near Lead, is that how it's called? Lead, yeah, you pronounce it Lead, because it means a lead into the, into the vein, it is, uh, it's a mining term, I, most people say lead, but it actually is pronounced Lead, and it's a, it's oh. a mining term saying you're, there's a lead into the... Uh, in the vein, uh, or you like a, it's, you almost, can, yeah, you it's can, almost a medical term. In a way, it, like it's the, well, yeah, the vein of the vein of ore, and yeah, it actually is. They're they're very similar um, in in the language, yeah. So what's what's famous about lead? Well, lead is where in in the in 1874, George Armstrong Custer came out to the Black Hills, which was the Great Sioux Reservation. It was ceded to the Lakota Indians as something they would have in perpetuity <laughs> and and Custer um illegally uh came to the hills uh with a, a huge expedition 200 wagons he had prospectors he had uh surveyors he had uh troops and they they went into the Black Hills and they discovered that there was gold in the streams. And so when that news got back to the rest of the nation, there was a gold rush into into the Black Hills um, that the army essentially just gave up on trying to stop. They just basically said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to try to deal with this. And so we had, the number I know, um, and I can't give you a source for this, but you know, is 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 t- about ten thousand people in a, in a couple of years suddenly are in in this part of the country. Um, and I'm speaking from Spearfish, uh, which is very close to to Deadwood. Um, and so this this area of the country is just suddenly populated with uh, gold seekers um, and. Eventually, George. Um, oh man, my mind just went blank of this. <laughs> oh, cripes! The newspaper guy, George Hurst. George Hurst uh, oh, comes oh. out here. Yeah, and and holy, her, and he's William Randolph Hearst's father, and he's a he's a mining genius. He, he just is truly a, a, a remarkable, bright. Um, 
a genius at, at developing mines. He, he was instrumental in developing the Comstock Lode in Nevada. But he, he and his partners here of this gold rush, and they come out here, and he sees this lead, this homestake lead, uh, this vein, and he recognizes it immediately as being, uh, as he put it, he said, this will make me and my partner's grandchildren uh, rich. You know, he saw it as a generation-long thing. He could see that right away, and so he buys this claim from uh, the men who had developed it, the Manuel Brothers, for $70,000, which they think is is a, a great price. <laughs> uh, and that's the beginning of the Homestake Mine. And so Hearst and his partners begin developing it. And within, by the time of the early uh, 20th century, the Homestake has become one of the major corporations in the United States. It's a um, one of the longest listed corporations in the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, it's pouring out gold. It basically sustained the U.S. economy uh, during the Depression. Um, so it's a huge operation, a huge corporation. Uh, that's the home stake. That's what we call out here. We just call it the home stake. You didn't even say, you didn't even say mine. You said it's the home stake. Um, so that's its, its brief history there. And, and it basically made the Hearst fortune. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering about Ray Davis. Is that correct? Yeah, Ray Davis. Okay, now you're, we just jumped from the 1800s into the mid-1900s, uh, about 1960. Uh, Ray Davis is a Pennsylvania University, State University scientist. He's a chemist, actually, who... Um, wants to study or test whether these theories about neutrinos, which are these really, really little particles that um, come out of atomic reactions, uh, both fusion and, and fission reactions. They're, they're poured out of nuclear reactors. They're poured out of the sun. And they had been discovered been postulated in the 1930s uh, as an explanation for um, missing, tiny missing bits of energy that uh, physicists had detected in um, nuclear, in, in fission reactions. And so Wolfgang Pauli had said, well, there, gotta be, there must be a little particle, a, a, a neutral particle, a neutrino. I mean, in, in Italian, it means a little neutral one. Um, there's some of the poetry for you. The, the little neutral one is running away with his energy. <laughs> and um, so Pauli postulates this particle, but it's so tiny and, and hard to detect that it's not until about the 1950s when nuclear reactors come online that a couple of men, um, Colin and Rhymes, uh, prove it. They, they, they actually set up an experiment and they detect... They detect these neutrinos. So now we know these things actually exist. So there, there's a, I have to interrupt myself because right there you have science working. You have a theory and it's a theory until it gets, you know, backed up by data. And so science kind of ratchets itself forward with these, this interplay between a theory that is a theory until it gets data that proves it, or I wouldn't even say proves it, but that seems to be account for it, and then you can move forward again. 
Um, so they, they detect a neutrino, so we know we have it. Then there are theories about solar fusion that come, come along where people are saying, well, how does the sun work? And, and they're, they're thinking if we, can, if we can find out how many neutrinos the sun emits, then we can figure out the, the fusion chain within the sun. Isn't this wild? I think it's just fascinating that, that they can it's say, insane. well, then we, then we can prove this, this one fusion chain. The sun starts here and it goes through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven fusion chains. And, and if we can say this is the number of neutrinos it emits, then we can, we can, in a sense, prove or back up that theory of, of the sun's operations. And then we know how the sun works. So, Ray Davis decides he can detect and count these neutrinos. So what he and he, so he's kind of the first person to really develop the idea of underground underground uh, places to study the skies. It's it's a fascinating thing here. He he realized if I go deep enough underground, I'll cut out all these other sources of radiation. Now we're back to the beginning of this interview. And then I will, what, what will be left is going to be these little nudges, these little minnows, these little neutrinos hitting um, element, you know, atoms of chlorine in this huge tank of perchloroethylene he had he set up, a 10,000 gallon t- tank of perchloroethylene set up in Homestake Mine, at 4,000 feet underground. A 40, the 4850 is what they call it. So he's 4,850 feet underground. And what he does is he gets Homestake's permission to set this big tank up, and he runs this experiment trying to count these neutrinos. And um, should I go on? I mean, the story the story goes on. I'm just not sure if I'm, not, if I'm talking too much. So <laughs> No, do, no. Do <laughs> we're, we're allowing you to go off because we're okay. interested. It's great. Okay, so so what happens is he counts these neutrinos. It's an incredibly careful experiment. And and what happens is the neutrinos hit a chlorine atom. They turn it into argon, and then he can count the argon. And so he does this really, really careful, meticulous experiment, and he finds that the neutrinos, there's only a third as many as the theories call for. And the theories are really good, and his experiment is really good. And so we have one of these conundrums of science where you've got an impeccable theory, which has to be right almost, and you've got this incredibly meticulous experiment, and the results don't match. And the scientists are just scratching their heads. They, it's so puzzling that they give it a name. They call it the, the solar neutrino problem, and no one can solve it until about 2000, it was either 2000 or 2001. So this guy runs this experiment from 1960, oh, it's the late 60s, until 2001. Wow. So we're talking 40 years, this conundrum of physics exists, where he's only coming up with one-third as many neutrinos as the sun ought to be producing by all the best theories. Finally, they discovered the neutrino changes its identity. We're back to this Trinitarian particle now. (laughs) In its passage from the sun to the earth, it becomes 
two other kinds of neutrinos. And only the first one will do this, will change his chlorine into argon, and the other two won't. <laughs> and so, so then they realize, oh, look at that. All along, his results have been absolutely perfect. The theory has been right. But the neutrino, this mysterious particle, has been changing its form or identity or quantum signature is probably the best term. It's, it's changing its quantum signature uh, as it moves through the 93 million miles of space. But so now the neutrino has become one of the the hugest, hottest research um, mysteries and questions in in astrophysics. Okay, so one of the the interesting things, the poetic things that keeps happening is we're talking about going inside to understand the darkness or to to try and mm-hmm. to try and measure the darkness. And so this is interesting because, you know, some of the other things that keep coming up in this Harper's essay is, you know, the idea of stillness and uh, light and darkness. I keep, I keep thinking mm-hmm. about Tao Te Ching, the Tao Te Ching where it talks about um, the the way the, the Tao, the energy of the universe always f- seeks the lowest point. Mm, mm, mm. And the choir is really interesting, your, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just kind of hearing the reverberations and the the characters in Twisted Tree in all this at the same time. Oh. So there's a darkness underlying the events of Twisted Tree, South Dakota, but then there's also the echoes that the the darkness. So there's like this connecting principle. So my my artistic, not scientific brain wants like some kind of connecting principle. They talk about the different scientific forces, and then the only thing I could come up with is okay, synchronicity somehow has this this density that connects everything else. Like that's the darkness inside. But so you know, let's talk about Haley Joe and how that one event at the beginning of Twisted Tree, you know, reverberates. Mm. And you know, uh, creates the whole, the whole, you know, all the trauma that goes on through the book. Yeah, I'm, as as a, a novelist, I'm I'm really I come I've come to realize I'm really interested in um, what I kind of call hollow hollow centers um, stories that that kind of reverberate up out of of something that that in a sense when you really look at it isn't there and. So, so what happens in that novel is that Haley Joe Zimmerman, who's really the central character of the of the novel, is gone in the very first chapter. She, she, she's only in that novel in the first chapter, and after that, she's kind of this hollow center where somehow she remains in the book. That at least I hope that's what happened. That was my intent. That she kind of runs through the whole book, and you get her entire life, in other words, the, the main character of the novel, you get her life, but you get it through other people who refer to her and remember her and feel guilty over not helping her and so on and so forth um, so that you can kind of trace, you can kind of trace the, her story back and form it without ever actually being told it. And and so I don't know if I'm responding to your to your question, Doug. But I 
I, I think I am. Um, that, that was really kind of the conception of that book. And so I certainly hadn't done this research into dark matter uh, before I wrote that book. But I suppose that, that there is a kind of interest there, isn't there, between, you know, dark matter is this thing that is, um, it, it's, it's weighty beyond belief. I mean, it, wake, it makes up way more matter than the matter we can see and touch. And yet we can't, it's like hollow. It's, it, we, it's so hard to detect. And so maybe my, my interest just run that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there is also, I, I also notice many instances of stillnesses where there's these big silences in, in the book also too. I can't come up with one off the top of my head, but I definitely anecdotally tracked that where maybe, Maybe the Falcon outside of the hotel room. There's just these moments. Oh yeah, of... right, right, yeah. Well, and silence is something that I'm again, I think, really interested in. I'm, you know, I think that in our modern age we have so much noise. I mean, literal noise coming at us, uh, and then of course again, virtual noise. Uh, you know, cell phones and. Uh, uh, smartphones and texting and advertising and you know it's a it's kind of an intellectual noise it is always impinging on us and I think what writers really need um, thinkers artists really need is is solitude and silence and so I am very much interested in and concerned about um, you know how how the mind can find quiet um, against the oh, the almost radioactive noise of our culture. Um, and so, yeah, in my in my um, novels, I'm I'm really interested in people who who make this connection. I think I think that's a great example. You know, Sammy Zimmerman opens his window or opens his drapes and he sees this peregrine falcon out on the ledge and. And he never talks to it, and yet there's a a huge connection that is made there um, in in the silence, in the kind of respect and dignity that he allows that animal. It's a great example of of that. The yeah. the other interesting thing in opposition to all this darkness, and I'm playing with the idea of dark matters. Um, the 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 light. There's so much light in this book at the same time. I'm thinking of the crow with the marble. These instances where mm. there's just transcendent light that arises that they, that almost it's it's like the other world impinging upon the world of matter. If as well, it were, those are, yeah. Um I love I love the way you're reading. I mean, I I just think that's um <laughs> Is South Dakota is a place like kind of like New Mexico, you know, where the light is just different. Um, it's it's just it's a I don't know how to describe it, but there is a quality of light out here on some days. It is just it's like something chiseled and um, jeweled, um, and it just it goes into the earth and comes back out that way. And so you've got this incredible wash of overwhelming light on some days. And then you've got, you know, people living in, in alienation and in, 
uh, solitude. Um, Shane Valen in that book is one of those characters who just cannot really connect. And yet, of course, he's um, connected to everything without really knowing it. He's the one who more or less knows the secrets that everybody else wants to know, but he can't convey them. He can't make use of them. And I've gone from light and dark there to connection and disconnection, I guess. But I think they're all part of the same um, metaphorical and symbolic structure. So those are things that really fascinate me as a writer. Right. The secrets that no one can tell. And your Mm -hmm. cashier seems to know the surface of the secrets, but not necessarily the secrets. Right. She, she, exactly. She, she can look at people, what they buy and kind of know, get right, (laughs) right down. She knows the priest smokes, you know, she knows, she knows the kind of marriage problems by looking at the food that's put on the, on the belt that she runs, but she, but she can't quite make the, the important connection. She knows Haley Jones is anorexic, you know, she knows that, but she can't reach out and say, Let's do something about it. So, so the knowledge of something and the ability to act on what you know are very different things. And she, in a sense, is right at that, that hinge or that node where she, she can see it, but she can't quite say it to herself. And then she can't go to the next step, which is to, after admitting it, act upon it. Um, well, real exactly. fast, when when I started reading this, I had no idea what I, I mean, judging a book by the cover, I thought, well, this is a, a Western book, you know, in quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah. well, and that, that I have to say was, you know, that's book design there, you know, it, it, uh, but the kind of ride I, the kind of ride that I was immediately taken on, it was just, it was like, oh my gosh, I did not know what I was signing up for. But tell us just a brief little bit about Alexander Stoughton. Is that his name? Uh, yeah, Alexander Stoughton. He he he's a he's a fictional mass killer who who basically uses the freeway system I ninety, which runs across the entire nation and and connects you know the east with the west coast and runs right to the middle of South Dakota. Um, he uses that anonymous corridor. Uh, to to find um, young girls and murder them, but he does it by means of the of the internet, which is another anonymous corridor of communication. And he pretends to be a a woman who is. And this is going to take a little time, but there there are these websites called Pro Anna websites, A N A Pro Anna websites, and Anna there means anorexia. And their website's designed to help young women, um, mainly young women, maintain anorexia. It's a kind of a, a lifestyle. And I heard about these and grew fascinated with that whole idea and actually uh, got onto a few of these websites. Uh, um, and it was what, what struck me so much about them was the images of these these starving bodies, which were somehow made weirdly beautiful and and because i was raised in a, a strong catholic background what i what i really saw what resonated for me was this uh this sense of this this looks like the the martyrs of of uh the catholic church you know these very thin bodies and i i got to thinking that there was some strange spiritual 
quality to anorexia that I had never heard anyone speak of. And so that's really in many ways the, the very deep, here we are at dark, the very deep dark um, source of the novel. And, and then you got dark and light again because, you know, spirituality is this light thing, but it can, it can so easily get turned into something really, really dark. And that's what I was seeing just in these images on these websites. And so I, that became the origins of this book, this guy who proposes to be a woman um, who is helping these young girls through these websites. And what he's really doing is, is discovering who they are, everything about them. And then when he knows enough, he finds them and murders them. And so that's the first chapter of the book. And it's, it is a very difficult chapter for some people to get through. Yeah. But it's not really what the book is about. The book then becomes about Haley Joe's absence from this community and, and the culpability that other people have uh, towards individuals. Yeah. And then it's what you have control over. You know, the events of life wash over you and, and what mm-hmm. can you control and how do you respond to different things. And Right, right. Well, we're running, yeah. we're running out of time. Tell us, I'm, you know, Twisted Tree came out in 2009. Do you have something that we can look forward to in the nearest well, future? Well, I hope so. I, I do hope so. I'm, I've been working on a novel for going on six years now, and it has just given me a lot of, of trouble. It's been somewhat intransigent, <laughs> but I think I'm close to having a draft that I can live with. And I would, I would hope this book is going to see publication within um, a year or a year and a half, but I'm, I'm a little reluctant to, I won't make any promises, but I, I'm feeling like I'm finally starting to feel the shape of this thing. And, and I think that, you know, just this whole conversation indicates to some extent how, how much I'm trying to get into a book. And I think that's what this book is doing. I'm trying to do some pretty ambitious things with it and uh, I'm having a hard time getting it done, but I hope a year, a year and a half, I'll have another one. Oh yeah. Well, we we definitely look forward to it. Uh, These books are growing out of each other in some way. I think with the work of Wolves, you you took a character and then he was the seed that created Tristed Tree. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Greggy Longwell was the only character that came out of uh, the work of Wolves and, and who I was, I was still interested enough in to seed into the next novel. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for interviewing me. It's been great fun. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you've been, yeah, this is wonderful. You've been listening to Kent Myers on Syncbook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Go to your local bookstore to find the works of Mr. Myers. For more information about The Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Sync Book Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archives, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and videos, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. And consider this, without dark matter, stars could not have clustered into galaxies. No light without the dark. It's not the same.